Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Project podcast, the Lifefulness podcast, where every single week we explore some of the most important uh, questions which affect us as humans trying to live our best lives. I'm Sanderson, going to be your host for today, and the person that we're interviewing is Robert Kolker, who has written an amazing book called Hidden Valley Road. It blew my mind. It is a history of schizophrenia told through a remarkable family. And so you're going to hear about this family really like unlike any other, uh, hear from one of the most talented nonfiction writers in the world and uh, learn about schizophrenia. Uh, This book was uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. It was one of Oprah Winfrey's book of the month. Cis, is that the plural? Uh, and uh, yeah, it's amazing. And now schizophrenia, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this seems a bit uh, obtruse or what have you. But like, I learned that 1% of the population will get schizophrenia. A third of all psychiatric hospital beds are for schizophrenia sufferers. 40% of these people go untreated every year. And one in 20 uh, sort of diagnoses ends in suicide. But it also teaches us lots about the human condition. Schizophrenia is a uniquely human disease. Uh, Rats can get anxious, depressed, even bipolar, but they can't get schizophrenia. The story that he tells also weaves through the science of schizophrenia and that will not only sort of sort of teach us about like you know how that you know that sort of changed and uh, particularly got some really interesting things around nature versus nurture. Which is it? We won't decide by the end of the podcast. And uh, but it also like is quite interesting from a point of view of like the history of science. How do ideas get decided? How do they change? So thanks so much for joining. Oh, I should just say we do these podcasts and they are sort of form key parts for discussion uh, as part of the Lifefulness Project where we meet up twice a a month for group coaching sessions where we check in, we go and discuss some of the issues which get brought up in this and then go and think about how we can put these ideas into action. So let's ask the question, what does schizophrenia teach us about being human? Hello. Hello. It's a, it's wonderful to be with you today. Oh, it is great to have you here. Um, it, it's Bob, yes? Oh, yes, please. Okay, very good. How come you're Robert on your books? When I was younger, I was Bobby. Okay. And when I, I started um, you know, writing for the school newspaper and things like that, I didn't like the way that looked, so I switched to Robert. And and then then as I got older, you know, I stopped, I dropped Bobby and became Bob, but I never went all the way to Robert. But in writing, I always stayed Robert. Okay, I mean... It's a thrilling, thrilling <laughs> journey I've been on. I mean, you have written a book which I have just been in raptures about, and yet I've somehow kicked it off with the most dull question you could positively uh, imagine. <laughs> and I gave you a nice long answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, really draw it, it begins out. begins in the 1980s. <laughs> I, look, I'm going to let you in on what is, uh, it's a semi-secret. I mean, not everyone knows it. I mean, my name is, so my middle name is Sanderson. And then I went and bumped it to the front. 
But then uh, I became a comedian. And when you become a comedian, you're allowed to slightly monkey around with your name. And I used to have, oh God, this podcast is now starting with two super long stories about uneventful <laughs> pen names. Ah, oh, what a nightmare. And so anyway. I have one about my brother if you want to make it three, but. <laughs> so uh, my Sanderson was my middle name, but I used to really like it. And when I went to music festivals, I would just say, oh, my name's Sanderson. So I was like, and I thought, well, maybe I'd move somewhere and have that as my middle name. It's very unusual. I became a stand-up, and I thought, yeah, you're allowed to have a stage name. But my surname, my real surname, Shelley, unfortunately, the initials SS have been really besmirched by really one organization, which <laughs> are not well-meaning at all. So I turned my other middle name, John, into Jones. There I am. I'm Sanderson Jones. I've become a stand-up and I've, I'm really trying to like make sure that I'm like, I've got, I was a bit un uncertain about it. So I was always like, I oh, know I'm Sanderson, I'm Sanderson. Of course, it's my name Sanderson. I know it does sound weird. God, imagine it was a nightmare to being called it at school. And then a comic, when I was at the Edinburgh Fringe, he was like, your real name is not Sanderson, is it? And I was like, well, no, I was pretty sure it's Sanderson. He went, I heard your aunt calling you Tom. And I was like, oh, no. And I had this, like, this is why I'm going to be bad at having an affairs. Well, not that I will, but I I shouldn't <laughs> contemplate it. And so I was like, oh, I've got a good, I just thought I'd dislike that. I was like, oh, yeah, well, you know what it's like when you're at school and you don't want to be the kid with the unusual name. So, and I didn't want to be called Sanderson. So I just used my middle name, Tom. And I thought I'd nailed it. And he just went, you didn't want to be bullied at school. So you, you said you were called Tom Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and that was as long as my lie lasted. Uh, so uh, there we go. I think that one ends with all, like a sort of like a, it's sort of like a, something approaching a punchline or maybe, maybe not at least something. Uh, so you've written this amazing book, Hidden Valley Road, and it is a history of schizophrenia told through one family. It's, it's an extraordinary work, which is hugely relevant because uh, schizophrenia, I'm looking at this, affects 1% of the population. A third of the people in psychiatric beds are have got schizophrenia and 40% of adults who have it are untreated and one in 20 commit suicide. So it is, and my, my great uncle was schizophrenic. I had an aunt who we sort of, was certainly approaching that as a great aunt. Uh, my, my actual aunt will be annoyed if I don't say great. Uh, the, and so it's, uh, and it was just utterly fascinating. But before we get into that, I'm going to ask you the question we ask everyone on the, the Life on this podcast, because we've got, uh, you know, we're all about looking at what you can learn from congregational communities. Uh, and we start from this place of seeing how we can adapt the spiritual into work in this secular world. So uh, what was the uh, religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? And you can answer that as sort of in as broadly as you interpret those words. Well, I was raised a reformed Jew uh, by, by Jewish parents, but I had kind of a special environment growing up. I grew up in a, a suburban community near Washington, D.C called Columbia, Maryland, that was one of these new, almost utopian 1970s model cities that was sort of built from scratch. So the idea was to have no churches, no, uh, you know, no, no, no history really, and to start over and to have a mixed, mixed races, mixed uh, income housing, and everything in walking distance with bike paths built in. Uh, and um, 
you know, public swimming pools that we all, everybody shared. So it was a real built-in community that was meant to be where everyone would be equal at the same time. And for religion, there was an interfaith center. So even though I was part of a religious congregation and a Jewish congregation and you know, had a bar mitzvah, I had it in a room with folding accordion doors and, um, and the, the, the Torah was in a, in, a, in a box that they would roll in and out of a closet because <laughs> the Catholics had the room the next day. You know, so it was, it, was, it was exciting. And we were all told it was exciting. We were all brought up to be told that this was a special place and a new way of living. And um, it was inspiring in, in its way. And I think many of us ended up in, I live in New York City, I'm in Brooklyn right now. And um, I think a lot of us from my childhood growing up, we moved, ended up moving to places like New York because we liked the idea of uh, all kinds of people being around us, not being just around one kind of person. Mm, that, I mean, that sounds fascinating. I mean, great thing about that question. I'm interested as we sort of uh, do community for people who are of all faiths and none, uh, I have a feeling I'm going to have to go and check that out. Uh, and then what would be one lesson that you think that, the 21st century could learn or relearn from religions if there's one thing that you think they do particularly well? I think they, they allow us a very clear window into human nature and into the way we think as groups and, and, and alone about the things we want, we want and the things we need out of life. Um, I think that there are plenty of people who say, well, religion is the problem or religion is the enemy. But I think if, if somebody snapped their fingers and got rid of religion, we would congregate in a different way and we would want authority in a different way and we would judge one another in a different way and we would help one another in a different way and and be each other's comfort in a different in a different way we would do all the same things and they they would call it schmilligen instead of religion it, it, it's really about who we are i mean that's exactly i found that when we did sunday assembly was the first version of the life on this project and we got uh atheists who got really upset that we were do what we were doing because apparently the way that I didn't believe in God was not the right way to not believe in God and <laughs> and you're like well if you really value something you want to get into a song you want to get into a room and you want to sing about it and then you probably want to hit have someone at the front who's telling you a story and you want to have a moment to reflect and then you're going to want to help each other and it sort of ends up like these are all things that you like separately how come when it comes in this same package, people are like, oh, no, 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 not, not that. Uh, so, and then this, uh, I mean, you've already touched on these things, which your uh, book really gets on, like there's interesting spiritual aspects to schizophrenia and how it uh, uh, goes and uh, interplays with sort of religious sort of feelings. But like, please, can you just uh, tell me, like, what was it like writing this book, which like crosses this one Maybe just start off from that moment when these two sisters approached you and said, can you write our story? And then maybe we'll just follow that family because it is, well, I was going to say insane, but that's very uh, the, much the wrong word for this story. It is, uh, no bonkers is wrong. It's remarkable. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to. I, I didn't come into this as as a doctor or, or as a patient or as someone with acute mental illness. And I didn't, I really didn't come into it with a particular opinion about schizophrenia. I came into it as an experienced nonfiction writer who wrote, has in the past, I've written long sort of tangled tales, all true about people going through difficult emotional circumstances, making it through difficulties or suffering as a result of them. But in any case, helping us understand a world we might not understand. And that's one of the things I love about writing nonfiction is that the right story, the right true story 
can open up a world to people that they otherwise would never know anything about. And when um, when I met these two sisters who were members of a family of with you know they were two of twelve children in this family, uh, they they came to me not because they thought I could solve schizophrenia, but because I could really help people understand what they went through as a family and and independently. They were the youngest. They were the only girls. They had ten brothers. Six of those ten brothers had schizophrenia. In the family, they told me you know in the first twenty minutes on the phone, I learned that there was a murder-suicide, that there was sexual abuse, that, that there was clergy abuse, uh, that one child was removed from the family in order to save her from the others and then felt abandoned afterward. And that uh, the mother was blamed for causing schizophrenia at a time when science was dead wrong on that subject. Uh, it just got sadder and sadder the more I heard about it. And the and, and I, I wasn't sure exactly what story I ought to be telling, to be honest, but should I talk about the two sisters helping each other through a difficult childhood? Should I be writing about the scientific researchers who studied this family and found out some new things and then turn the whole thing into a science book, a case study? Or, or was it even bigger than that? Was it an intergenerational family saga where you get to know the parents and learn all about their lives and their hopes and their dreams and then they have children and then things start to go wrong and they aren't sure why and then the family kind of slowly explodes. And then in, you know, the, the saga continues with the next generation as they grow up and evaluate what went on and help one another and, and just try to figure out what it all means. The, the, suddenly that became the project and the book got bigger and bigger the longer I, I worked on it. Did you ever think of doing it as a sort of like maybe a knockabout French farce? Sort of <laughs> like maybe, get, but like really play it for laughs? Did that uh, ever cross your mind? Yeah, and animating it, of course. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it needed animals, that much I was sure. <laughs> it needed friendly, friendly animals to keep them all company. Um, uh, but yes, it was, it, it, there was all, all, every option was on the table. But, but by the end, what you get, it, I hope, is the kind of, um, the kind of true story that, that opens up a world for people that lets you know how these people dealt with it. And also, um, how, it's really a, a, a story about a family in crisis and what happens mm. and how they make it through. And, and I think sometimes during hard times, people read books like this for tips. You know, they read about a true story of someone suffering to see, well, how did they make it through? How did they, how did they integrate this experience? What's their worldview like now? How do they get up in the morning? And, and these were questions I, all I immediately had on my mind from the moment I met them. So I can't tell you the number of times, Sanderson, that I would say to the sisters or to others in the family, why didn't you just leave and never come back? Why didn't you just move out of town and change your name and become a lawyer and send them a Christmas card every year and uh, dodge their phone calls? You know, why, why, wouldn't, why would you continue given the amount of suffering you experienced? And, and everybody's answer got deeper and deeper and deeper the more I talked with them. And that, that's in the book as well. That's a little far afield from schizophrenia, which I'm happy to talk about as well. But that's that's the story in the book, pretty much. But I think we'll we'll get to the schizophrenia side of it. But but and also the moment you talk about this step family, you're getting double helping of schizophrenia every like in every sort of page because, I mean, I the way I sort of thought about it, it was it was almost like sort of royal Tannenbaums meets uh, sort of uh, I thought Jacob's Ladder. Uh, and then also Easy Rider because there it wasn't just a normal family like the you like 
for instance, that the uh, mother and father really got uh, into falconry. And so you've got these people who are sort of losing their minds whilst they have these sort of like birds of prey, which, uh, uh, which, and then, which that makes the like local Colorado newspaper go and write a, about them. Like, again, I'm just, I think that's going to be the, like, what was it like as you then discovered how unusual they were? And, and if you could just share like some of those quirks with our listeners, because it, like it really can't be believed because it's also like a story of America from the 60s onwards. I'm, I love this book so much. I'm going to desperately try to convey that to people. Well, the one of the first things I learned is that the 12 children were perfectly situated in the baby boom. So the oldest son was born in 1945 and the youngest child, the second daughter, was born in 1965. And so it's almost as if they, the whole family embodied the post-war American optimistic experience that then slowly become second guessed and chipped away at and undermined and until finally things kind of fall apart at the same time that America was falling apart in the late 60s and early 70s. It's a, it was amazing to me how, how it lined up that way. But more than that, they are sort of Royal Tenenbaums like in that even before the children got sick, they were a family of distinction because first of all, there were so many children and also uh, the falcons. I mean, there were animals in this story, to be honest. <laughs> there really were. Um, so they. This is a family. These are, imagine a, a couple from New York. They're kind of snobby. They they have to move to Colorado, not to a city, but to a town, uh, because that's where the Air Force has set up after World War II. So that they, he they're moving for work. They don't want to be there. There's no opera there. There's no culture. What do they do? I mean, a different family, a different couple would learn golf, you know, or, or, uh, or, or perhaps join the, join a, the community center or something. They, they take on falconry. They, they choose a very strenuous extreme and at the time, not terribly mainstream at all, if it even. As opposed to nowadays. I go, oh now, God, I've got four falcons now, out back, mate. <laughs> that's right. My falcons are <laughs> right out of frame. Um, but they, yeah, they, they, they choose this very strenuous, very demanding thing where they're taming wild predators to become domesticated. And they're, they, you have to work 24 hours a day on it and devote a lot of energy into it. And they love it. And I, I believe one of the reasons they loved it is because it was part of that post-war optimism. It was part of this feeling of triumphalism. It was this feeling that if you worked hard enough and applied yourself, uh, that good things would happen to you, that the right things would happen to you. But of course, as we all know, anyone with children knows not everything you plan comes to pass. And then with this family, things that were definitely out of their control started to happen. And so it became um, like almost like a double curse. It's not just that bad things happen to them. It's that bad things happen to a family that did not expect bad things to happen to them because they thought they were doing everything right. And, and then also that bad things happen to a family where there's there's 12 of them. Mm, so the, exactly. the you I mean everything in it becomes sort of magnified when you're reading it there's like the you know the mum desperately uh trying to sort of pretend that things are normal whilst there's a one of the brothers is wandering around in monk robes and someone else is recently and you just at each level of the family it, the sort of the chaos starts a bit earlier what did schizophrenia look like in this family because it looks very different in in uh, the the different brothers mm -hmm. yeah that was one of the one of the things i've learned and of course the point of this book was to write compassionately about mental illness and not to write it as 
as a monster movie and to make sure that it was a book that everybody could read and, and, and feel for everybody in the book, not just the sick, the well people, but the sick people as well. I mean, there is a son, Donald, who in many ways is menacing, but he, in many other ways, he is terrified. He is, he does, he's a stranger to his own thoughts and emotions. And I wanted to get that across. Schizophrenia in general is, is not like uh, COVID-19. You can't look at it in a microscope and say, there it is. It's, all it is is a name. It's a, it's a name we give a bunch of symptoms. We've classified them as schizophrenia, which means that it's not a cookie cutter condition. It means that uh, two brothers can have it, but have very different symptoms. And in this case, it was six brothers. One had was, had, was under the impression that he was Paul McCartney, so he has a delusion. And another one could see a Chinese emperor in the sky talking to him. So that's a hallucination, that's different. And then another one was paranoid. And another one was hyper-religious, as, as you said. Another one was more closer to almost being bipolar and had, had episodes of mania. Uh, and so it, um, it, 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 very little overlap between them all and yet all with schizophrenia diagnoses. And then of course, one who was, who, who did the family didn't know much about except that he had his prescription and then he also uh, killed himself and his girlfriend. So it's it just a, that was a, like, probably the lowest point possible for the family. And they just didn't know what to do. And that one of the other brothers had also like, had also tried to do a murder suicide before which the mother just never spoke to people about. Don't mention the murder suicide. <laughs> Lots of family secrets in the book. When it's an exciting book to talk about and to discuss because there are certain questions I can talk with about readers where the conversations can go on and on. First of all, why do you think they had 12 children? And was that maybe the wisest move or not? Not, not everyone agrees on that. Some people say that that's the source of the family's problem. And then uh, the other question being, what do you think of the parents? That, sure, they made mistakes, but are they, is there anything admirable about what, how they tried to deal with the undealable situation? And people are all over the place on that as well, because it's certainly true that uh, Mimi Galvin, the mother, put some of the children in harm's way with her decision to help some of the others. And that the father was a little more checked out than you might imagine, even though during his lifetime, he was revered by the family. It, it gets very, very complicated. Well, my challenge and the exciting part of writing a book like this is not to be a judge and jury, not to, not to weigh in and say, she was right and he was wrong, but to sort of give everybody's rationale so that people can think about it and see which characters they identify with the most. Yeah, I found myself switching between them. And uh, there was this one moment I sort of uh, was speaking to uh, my wife about these. There's a sort of book where you're constantly reading things out or trying to as my wife tries to get on with her life. Uh, and uh, yeah, the mum who is always, there's these telling things where this one time she uh, uh, is recounting in the newspaper after some remarkable thing has happened to her. And she says of one of the sons, uh, he's our prodigy at the moment. And you're like, ooh, that sounds like that sort of <laughs> constant who's in the lead right now, sort of, uh, at least that's the thing which resonated for me of like, so-and-so is the clever one, so-and-so is this one. And that that is the way that, <laughs> like that list is in the, the, the family's head right from the, like, you know, as things are happening, like the success looks very, looks a certain way. And because these guys are all like musical prodigies, they're sort of sports stars, they're dancers. It's, 
And they're good looking. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's good looking too. They've got it all, including schizophrenia. This amazing scene at Thanksgiving, mm. which is the, like in the Royal Tannenbaum, and I kept on having this Royal Tannenbaum's analogy, but it's obviously so, like, so sad where, you know, these, because there's so many brothers, but it became normal that they're fighting and it is just, no matter how bad your own family thinks, maybe that's what, that's what I'm going to take from it. Whenever our Christmas goes slightly awry, I'm thinking, well, at least there's uh, not two schizophrenic brothers here fighting each other until one person picks up the Thanksgiving table and throws it at the other before fighting in the room. It is an, on this like American, uh, you know, the uh, American dream gone to pot, you know, what like, better image for the family that can't hold on as like the 60s and 70s of fighting it out over the turkey. Yes, and, and I, I think it, it was especially important to the mother to have a successful holiday. And, and she could not have helped uh, but be feel, um, feel judged by what happened in her mind. She, you know, her, her, her own mother must have been watching along with her and saying to her, you know, how did it come to this? What did you do wrong? So it, it was dev a devastating moment for her in particular. Yeah, and I mean, we've all got that voice in our heads. No matter what happens to your child or someone in your life, you're always asking, oh, could it have been gone slightly differently? No matter what the uh, situation is. And I guess like alongside this, you uh, tell the story of the science of schizophrenia, but there's one sort of, uh, there's a quote from one of the researchers you spoke to and they all, I mean, you've done such a great job of making these people really come alive and you're rooting from the whole way through of, I think it's Friedman who says that uh, schizophrenia seemed to be a uniquely, uh, uniquely human disease or uh, something about it, which is uniquely human because it is a disease of the imagination. It's uh, what is it that you sort of see in schizophrenia, which like does go and teach you things about what it is to be human. There, there are a lot of ways of looking at that statement. I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up, actually, because it does make you think. It is human, and the one, one very practical thing is that it makes it much harder to come up with new medicines because mice don't get it, right? You know, you have to find humans to test out your drugs on, and that's risky and uh, expensive. Um, so, from a practical standpoint, uh, coming up with better medications for schizophrenia is much harder than it is for bipolar disorder or anxiety or depression, which has, you know, as you know, there's some better drugs for that. But the, the other way of looking at it is that um, the, the people who get it typically get it at the end of adolescence in their early 20s, which means that for anyone around them who loves them, there's a tremendous sense of loss. Uh, you see, you know, you see the person, you knew this person very, very well, and now it's almost as if they've died. And that becomes the challenge for half of the Galvins who are still well, is to still look at those brothers as if they're alive and as if, as if they're human beings, because it's if it's, it's somehow um, warped or changed or, or stolen their personalities away. You don't even get that with something as dramatic as um, autism, because it happened, autism typically happens so early. Um, so the, the, the person's personhood is really taken away from them at a very vital age. It can't what well, actually the there was a name for schizophrenia before they came up with that name dementia precox and the the latin precox is it basically means it's dementia for young people so it's not happening at the end of life it's happening in the prime of your life and that makes it makes it tragic so uh, dr friedman studying this must have thought 
you know, here's a disease that is not, uh, that you can't see it as a, a lesion on your arm or as a problem on an x-ray. It's, it's a thing that's happening to your personality. And, and, how, and yet he knows that it's a brain disease, that it's not um, a social you know, problem or a, a neurotic problem. He knows it's a medical problem. So he wants to really get to the heart of it and find the source of it. And that's the tension in the book. There are people in the 20th century who are convinced that this is not a, not a brain disease, not a medical problem, that it's about your mother doing a number on you and turning, making, you, making you schizophrenic. And, and so the geneticists are, are desperate to find proof that this is a genetic disease. And Dr. Friedman is one of those. And he becomes the first, thanks to the Galvins, to identify a gene that's a player in, in schizophrenia. Uh, the punchline is there are a lot of other genes too that are players, too many players that are in, in schizophrenia now. The, uh, it's actually in the book, I sort of, uh, uh, when you were writing about that, I came up with a sort of slightly sort of modern curse that you could give someone. And it was, may your DNA become a case study for rare and painful congenital diseases. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, that's not something you really, the part of uh, science that you wish to contribute to. Uh, mostly, like, like, I, like, I've got bad news and good news. <laughs> <laughs> One, you're going to yeah. be involved in a Nobel Prize for Science, <laughs> uh, and yeah. and the and but it, it does really get into that nature nurture debate as well. I mean, that's like at its heart that it is something where you are you are sort of like because the other. The other children obviously come from the same parents in this family. Could you just like go and break down, like, because I think it's really interesting from the nature nurture side of things, like, you know, what schizophrenia teaches us about uh, how the like how the environment impacts us, and then uh, you know why some children got away with it. Because I think it's just you know it's such an age old debate. Sure, I, I think you know. Let's say let's say in the middle of the nineteen hundreds you know, before psychiatry is a thing, you went up to somebody who was smart and paying attention to things going on in the world. And you said to them, do you think madness runs in families? You know, that person would probably say, well, sure it does. Just look at the royal families of Europe. You see, you know, so-and-so was out of their mind and then their nephew was too. And then that, that person had four children and one of them was insane. You know, we know from the documents, you know, from history that, that madness runs in families, but then, if that person was started to really study things, they would see that very, very rarely does it ever go from parent to child. Um, and, and so then it, and then sometimes it seems to pop up all by itself. The person does, like it, like the Galvins, for instance, no one, no grandparents seem to have acute or severe mental illness. And so everybody wonders, where does it come from? And then the other solutions start to present themselves and modern psychiatry is born and people like Sigmund Freud suggests that it's something environmental, that it's nurture, not nature. And, and so you, um, you look at a child like Donald Galvin, the, the oldest uh, of the children and the first to become sick. He's a very promising uh, young guy with a, who's a, a star, an all state you know, star athlete, um, good looking, dating uh, the general's daughter at the Air Force Academy. Um, very, very promising, but he starts to stumble in some ways and disconnect with people around him. His, his grades aren't what they should be. By the time he's in college, he's completely almost a hermit. He starts to act out in ways he doesn't understand. 
he runs through a bonfire during a pep rally. He tortures a cat. He tries to mask his behavior until he can't, and his parents aren't sure what to do. They could send him to the state hospital, but that would be the end of his life. And, and the whole family would probably be scandalized by it because there's a stigma. Um, they could send him to a different doctor, uh, someone more posh, but that doctor would most likely start blaming the parents. They would take a look at mom and dad and say, what did you do to this boy to make him this way? And so that's unacceptable too. It's a little like being in a, you know, being shopping somewhere and seeing no good options. Like they had no idea what the right option was. And there was debates and, and, and different schools of thought about what schizophrenia actually was. So they just sort of tried to hope that he would grow out of it, frankly, that, his, that he would develop his own uh, self-reliance and stand on his own two feet. And they kept him at home and then he would go to the state hospital when he needed to. And by then the others were getting sick. Jim was, was, was paranoid and violent. And Matthew, uh, um, as I said before, he believed he was Paul McCartney. And then, but he also you know, stripped naked at a friend's house and broke a vase. Uh, another boy, Peter, um, he, he, uh, he, decom he completely had a breakdown at school and then later at camp and then had to um, uh, go in and out of hospitals. He, he, he has that cycle that's like um, a lot of people you read about and, and most people in, in, in the world now, they sort of go from the hospital to homelessness and then back to jail and then to the, ho the hospital and then homeless again and then jail because there is no healthcare that's really good enough to keep them uh, leveled out. They just keep going in that revolving door. Where was the, uh, you? I think it was you said in Denmark that there were places where they had gone and found sort of better solutions for people. Uh, like what does that look like compared to the, uh, the American principle of self-reliance on, uh, for self-reliance for people who have no self? Uh, it's a tough, uh, tough ask. There are places, I think Australia is another, that has a lot more community support for mental illness. They a lot more um, live in situations where the people are surrounded by supportive, uh, a supportive presence that is not necessarily about prescription drugs, but more about constant attention and, and people tending to them. And, um, and also a sense of family. Um, one of the big mistakes of the 20th century was warehousing the mentally ill and getting them away from the people they loved that turned out to be one of the worst things for them. It turns out, you know, making sure they feel supported can prevent further psychotic breaks. So um, these, these smaller models are, are, are pointing the way in some ways for sure. Because there's that part at the end and that really got me that where one of the, I think it's uh, Mary who then changes her name to Lindsay. And so she's, uh, you know, she ends up doing so much for her family. She's the youngest daughter and her son starts to, uh, you know, like have uh, play up a bit. And then he ends up like being intercepted at a far younger age. And and, and she goes and reflects on oh, actually what would what would happen if my brothers had been able to go into these sorts of caring environments and instead of what sounds like, again, you just can't, this book, like it's just, it's not just rough and tumble. These guys are beating the shit out of each other. There's, I mean, it is proper physical violence, but which maybe of a type where like the father, because he'd grown up on a, uh, on a aircraft carrier was like, oh, well, you know, 
men will be men. Might as well just let my sons sort it out themselves. But yeah, what are the sort of different environments that you think people can go and survive better in? There are programs for teenagers who are who are really um, heading into unstable periods in their life for a variety of reasons. And one of them might be early onset of psychiatric problems. And those programs are supportive in nature. They're kind of like, you know, sunrise to sunset kind of programs, including ones where you go away to a therapeutic boarding school. And they're of all varying qualities. But, um, but Jack, the, the boy in my book, who is of the next generation, the new generation of Galvin's, he, as you said, he's in his teens, he starts uh, seeming a little um, off, you know, off kilter and the parents don't wait because they know that they know who his uncles are. They know he has six uncles with acute mental illness and that they've been waiting for this moment in fear their, his entire life. And so they pick him up and they, they extract him from his daily life and they put him in a supportive, um, first, a, first a wilderness program and then a therapeutic boarding school where they visit all the time and he gets lots of therapeutic skills and it turns out that most of his problems were really anxiety about the family illness itself, not the not being ill, but being anxious about the illness. And he really is fine today. But his mother, um, who Lindsay, the youngest sister in the family, his mother is left convinced that some of her brothers could have benefited from this kind of attention when they were 15 or 16 and not left on their own devices to be walloped by their brothers. Uh, she really thinks some of her brothers would perhaps wouldn't have been as far gone, would have developed better coping mechanisms, wouldn't have had as many psychotic breaks, might have had a more functional life. And, and I think we're left wondering in the, in the book if part of the, to get back to Dr. Friedman, you know, to, one of the things about being human uh, is, is being around other humans, being, you know, finding the people who can really love you and support you. Hey, I'm uh, just going to interrupt for a little bit. Normally I speak about something going on in the Life on this project here, but I wanted to do something a bit different. I just wanted to invite you, wherever you are, whatever you might be doing, uh, to just like go and you know, just take a moment to breathe deeply. Maybe see if you can just take three deep breaths. Don't close your eyes because you might be driving. And just see if you can relax your shoulders and just chill out in your body a bit more. There, maybe you'll like that, maybe you'll hate it, but that's just a little try. Now here, it's back to the podcast. Yeah, there's some uh, studies on German nuns, which uh, apparently they're you know, you go and put them in a scanner, as uh, neuroscientists are wont to do. They love nothing better than uh, popping in someone in the whirring donut. Uh, I don't know if they call it that. But uh, and then uh, often their their brains will have a lot of the signs of decay, which you would associate with uh, dementia or some other sort of disease of the brain, which would lead to you know some very well established symptoms. But actually, because they are in a place where they are surrounded by people they love, where well, I mean, you can they haven't found the direct thing, but you can go surrounded by people they love. They've got a real sense of structure. It is something which is deeply meaningful to them. They have practices which are very familiar and 
yeah, they don't go and uh, display the symptoms. And yeah, it goes and it does then go and turn it back, not on the, I guess it's like, it turns it back on the mum, but like she, like, uh, or the dad, but they did as well as can be bearing like a situation that is just impossible. I've got a little two-year-old son and every now and again, I find a bit myself a bit stressed out. If, if one of if one of my son is crying about something, yet alone having 12 people sort of like at each other's throats. This connection with religion, I found really interesting because my, uh, my uncle, uncle, my great uncle, Uncle Robin, he went, uh, he had schizophrenia and he ended up going to um, the, our family thing would always be like, you'll get sent to Dingleton, which is the uh, uh, old uh, sort of, uh, well now some uh, luxury flats, but previously a home. And he, he also, he sent letters to the Pope demanding to be consulted on uh, all UK sort of uh, Roman Catholic appointments. What do you think the sort of connection with religiosity is? Like, why is it that there seems to be something which is when your imagination gets tweaked, you can get drawn to these feelings? Uh, it's a wonderful question. Uh, one, one possible explanation is that it, it, it's something, it, it's a very, a very good explanation for, for something that appears to be supernatural that's happening to you. So you, you, your mind immediately goes there to explain it. So if you, if you see something you think you can't see, um, then that you shouldn't be able to see, then, then perhaps that's the explanation. Of course, that's loaded right in the Bible. I mean, there's King Saul who, who sees things and hears things and, um, uh, you know, uh, other, you know, and, and all sorts of visions, you know, Moses has visions and Abraham is visited. Every time everyone is, someone is visited by God, there's doubt that it, that it actually exists. And that person believes in their belief. It actually is something that they're rewarded for. Um, someone who is schizophrenic and has a vision is rewarded for it by, by, by believing it's true. And, and of course, in real life, this happens as well. There is um, Joan of Arc, who, um, who, who believed an angel was talking to her. And, and the people around her said that she was a heretic. And then she died. And shortly after she died, the view of those visions was revised to be you know saying that no she really was hearing an angel and so so the um you know mental illness was a moving target even back then about whether she was right or wrong and so that it, it's been wrapped up in religion for a very long time long before psychiatry religion was the was the explanation for for schizophrenia and uh, um and it, and i i think it, it you know a, a disease like this can really bring you to your knees and make you feel helpless and so i think the things that you're seeing and hearing they have to become things that that you you relate with in a very fundamental way i could see why religion would definitely be be the the way through for people one thing that uh, and maybe we can go into some of the just before we wrap up i suddenly thought like some of the science parts of it uh the uh which we've already done i feel that we've already we can get into the genetic components uh it is a uh, uh, sensory in part it's a sensory gating disorder which uh what that means is it is about uh how you go and process information uh and this gets sort of uh discovered by a man who goes and sends two different beeps and apparently in human in brains not human, we're all humans in uh brains operating uh sort of normally the second beep registers a slightly lower wave because it's already had one beep come in and it sort of can imagine that it's not so surprised by the second one 
that might be butchering it. Is that more or less correct? Yes, it, it's the the pruning hypothesis. It's that as our brains, you know, our brain, our brains aren't really finished developing until the end of adolescence. Um, that's why everybody wants to raise the driving age and things like that, um, because they think, why would you let a 16-year-old, you know, drive a car? But they, but your your brains are still developing, and one of the things that they're doing is learning to prune out. Uh, the things that they don't, things that you don't need to see, the stimuli out there that is distracting to you so that you can focus on other things. And so the hypothesis is, what if a person with schizophrenia just hasn't pruned properly, they just can't do it the way that other people can. And so they're seeing everything, including delusions, including hallucinations, including auditory uh, things as well. And I think that that makes a lot of sense, particularly since you don't have to be a diagnosed with schizophrenia to hear voices. I mean, there, there's, there are studies that suggest that many of us have heard you know, voices over, over time. And, and so it's, it's about pruning, perhaps. Yeah, and so that's the thing which I was reading a, uh, a book called uh, how, we, uh, how People Believe in God, I think it's that. And it actually talks about how people can go and develop the ability to hear voices and the develop the ability to see things. And so, you know, people, once people become born again Christians, they suddenly go and not suddenly, the chance of them hearing a voice or seeing a vision increases. But the way that they do that is that they is a process which they call discernment. And it's quite similar to how people in cult situations will go and have these programs where you're really sort of like learning to tune your senses and interpret things in a way that in line with what you believe. But here it seems as though that same discernment, you get you get some of the religious sort of rewards or some of the religious visions, but like just because uh, something has, you know, the normal processes are really knocked off course. You know, the, the, the other way of looking at the pruning thing isn't that you, let's see if I get this right. It isn't that you can, that, that you just aren't as good at, um, at at tapering away and focusing on things, it could be that you um, that you've pruned too much. You know, mm. you might, there might be over pruning too. So there's there there are all sorts of different ways of looking at it. Genetically speaking, we have confirmation now that the that this is a genetic disorder. What we don't have is a smoking gun. We we, we have many many different genetic variants that are that can possibly cause this problem. But, but there is no one single gene that we can zap with a drug. So it's very frustrating. And then to add to that is the idea that the environment is still a player. I mean, that genes aren't destiny. It's not like the gene says two weeks after your 22nd birthday, you're going to have a psychotic break. The, the, the gene is merely saying that you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to developing this. And so then the question becomes what, make, what damages our brain to weaken us and make us more susceptible? Is it child abuse? Is it being part of a family of 12 children? Is it having a mother who makes certain decisions? You know, all the same arguments start to come back over and over again. So genetics isn't the end of the story, curiously. But, but it, it does, but you shouldn't, um, we shouldn't walk away from the idea that, that genetics is the way out of this because certainly if we can identify the, the variants that are causing issues with brain function, we can find ways to strengthen the brain to make it more resilient against those vulnerabilities and strengthening the brain is really the ball game. That means helping people when they're babies and, and have genetic vulnerabilities, not waiting until they have their first psychotic break, you know, helping their brains develop in a healthy way. And it was actually after reading this book, I sent my wife a note saying, 
uh, are you taking your choline, C-H-O-L-I-N-E? Uh, -E. And she was like, have you been taken over by someone else? You never send me information about health supplements and pregnancy ever. Uh, and it would be good maybe just draw it to a close with that, uh, you know, how the Galvins do uh, end up contributing to this genetic breakthrough. Yeah, I love, I love talking about choline because it's a nice reminder that the book has some happiness toward the end. Um, so, so, um, so there's a part of the brain, you know, a part of the, you know, a, a part of our genetics that, that Dr. Friedman, who studied the Galvins, that he pinpointed as being a problem, a brain receptor that could be a potential problem with schizophrenia. And so he, the question then becomes, how do you monkey around with that receptor to make it work better so that it communicates better? A receptor is nothing but more than just a messenger. It's a communicator between brain cells. So how do you get that receptor working again? How do you, how do you jumpstart it? And so um, he spent 10 years or so trying to think of ways to do it and it never went anywhere. He hit, he, he had a lot of very promising results in early drug trials for something and then he hit a wall. And then he started to think, what if I'm going about this entirely the wrong way? What if the idea isn't to fix this receptor when it's broken, but to, um, make the brain more resilient from a very young age. What instead of giving you a drug, there was something you could give an expectant mother, all expectant mothers, to make sure that their brains were protected against this flaw, potential flaw in this one brain receptor. And, and that sounds a little crazy. First of all, giving medicine to expectant mothers sounds crazy. And, and secondly, like what makes you think you can fix this brain receptor with a, dr with, with, with a drug? But it turns out, he, we do this all the time. We, we have prenatal vitamins and those vitamins have all sorts of substances in them, non-toxic substances, most likely you know, nutrients or, or enzymes that are out there already, but just making sure that every expectant mother takes one to prevent things like uh, spina bifida or cleft palate or, or some disorders. So he thought, what if I could find something like that? And it turns out that this brain receptor benefits from choline and choline is a is is not copyrighted it's not patented it's um something you get at, at the store where you get your vitamins where you get flaxseed or where you get vitamin d you can also get choline and and so his hypothesis is what if expectant mothers took a ton of choline um i mean you get it anyway in things like eggs but what if you just took a lot of it would it help the child, uh, children, uh, at potentially even, you know, at, it would help everyone, but potentially could help that small population that uh, might develop acute mental illness. And we're in the middle of a longitudinal study. These children are, I don't know, four or five now, and they're doing great. And it's all very promising. But of course, we really won't know if there's a material difference from those choline kids for another 20 years or so. So it, it's, it's a long time to wait, but it's, it's a nice way of thinking about what is possible here. Yeah, I, uh, well, I mean, I, I, and the one thing I think is worth, like your book's very funny, I loved it, but I think we, even when you just, uh, when you were writing about choline, I think you said you could get it from your vitamin shop and you sort of put the, you put a double P-E on the end of it to make it look nice and old worldy. And uh, the, yeah, it, so like in a conversation, it has been uh, as delightful to spend time with you uh, in person uh, as it has been reading your work. It's really, like, I'm, 
it was quite when when sort of looking at all the different new and upcoming books which are coming out in the UK. Initially, I was like history of schizophrenia. Also, and then I, the more I read about it, I was more intrigued. I was, and then I went and read the book, and I just totally loved it. Where can people go and uh, follow uh, Robert Colker, Bob Colker, uh, as everyone knows from our very boring conversation at the start? Uh, <laughs> where can people find you, and where can people find your book? Well, well, Robert Coker won the website, so it's robertcoker.com for the if you for those keeping score, and um and yes, the Hidden Valley Road is published by Quercus in the UK, and I love them there. They're my they're my favorites, and yeah, I even visited with them while I was writing the book, um before uh, before the pandemic, um and and it was that's not always what happens when you have a, a secondary publisher like that. Normally, they're just people you know at long distance, but they're wonderful. And I, I wish them the best. And I'm and I'm very glad they've been very supportive of this book. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's on sale everywhere. Yeah, so please do. Hey, thank you so much for watching. Thanks so much to everyone who no, not watching for taking part. I got the thing in the wrong order. Thank you so much for coming on this. The <laughs> uh, these conversations go on to be sort of discussion topics. And I really think there's so many interesting to things to come from it. Uh, all thanks so much for everyone who was watching on Facebook. Goodbye now to our Facebookers and to everyone who is in the Zoom. We're now going to have a chat about it. This was amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Sanderson. I'll take my leave now, but, but uh, all the best to you. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you about this. Thanks so much for listening to that. Uh, I was, yeah, totally honored to go and speak to Robert Colker. What was fascinating is that I got an email from uh, one of the protagonists of the book, uh, Lindsay. I mentioned her in the podcast. Hello, Lindsay. You, are, you will be listening to this. And uh, yeah, it was uh, because she's like collecting various different interviews. So it felt very strange. It felt like I was sort of... Uh, you know, so speaking to a celeb almost quite, uh, well, now it's quite odd knowing that I'm talking about this, knowing that Lindsay's listening. What a weird position to be in, uh, unless she turned off like halfway through and discuss. But like to get this insight into someone's life, it was really phenomenal. I'm just going to say again how amazing that book was. And uh <clears throat> Yeah, so what else is going on in the Lifefulness uh, project? That's what I always like to do at the end. So there is, we went and launched these new events. So what we're doing is we're trying to work out the right way to live stream it so that people can listen uh, like as they're actually being recorded. And then at the end, we're doing like a bit of a Q&A, not a Q&A, a bit of a discussion, a sort of uh, lightweight version of what the small groups are, our group coaching sessions are. And then uh, there's at the start, there's some mindfulness and movement. And we were doing singing, but that actually got our live stream taken down. So we're having a little think about that. And uh, then, yeah, so if you want to go and check it out, we've got our events on the site. Uh, I should also go and let you know how to, I don't think you can actually sign up to our newsletter because that's where we send out the events. So well, I'll work on that. Yeah, we've had these in, there's always a bit of like, how and how's it going for me? Uh, uh, new listeners will not know that I'm uh, an ADHDer, so there's some parts of the whole the world of the entrepreneurship and doing things which can sometimes get a bit much. But generally, and this is what I worked with my ADHD coach with, you know, things are like going well. Like there's, uh, you get into this weird position when you have struggled with things before where like 
if there's you start to do lots of things, you instantly start to think how they could go wrong. And that's something which is I have to go and teach myself not to sort of do. And it's not necessarily something which is, you know, like that cognitively, that, you know, that I believe. But like after things have been difficult in other times, you, you're a bit like someone who's been dumped a, a load of times, you know, you sort of end up not sort of trusting yourself or the future. So I've got to, you know, actively go and be like, you know what? Things are things are going well. So, uh, look, I would, uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. As ever, there's the, uh, you know, uh, we love doing the podcast and we really hope this helps. But we, what we love even more is actually doing the community. And you can go and find that out on uh, lifeonest.io forward slash membership. If you get a year's membership, you get it for seven ninety nine a month in pounds, which is very, very reasonable. And uh, then... Uh, that's probably it thanks so much for listening uh, uh, you didn't have James Croft today but I always want to thank my co-host thanks to uh, the uh, wonderful Mavs for doing the uh, production thanks to uh, Will Andrews for designing the artwork and thanks to Roman Rapak or Miro Shot and Miro Shot for doing the outro music that you're listening to now